Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. If you would please open up to John chapter 20. It is page 906 in the Red Bible. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you, somewhere in front of you. Please take that Bible and open to page 906. If you don't own a Bible, that is a Bible for you to keep. So page 906 in the Red Bible, 1077 in the large print blue Bibles, which you can find in the back, and page 1171 in the children's Bible. Today we're going to read all of John chapter 20, but we will only focus on the later half. Just prior to John chapter 20 and John chapter 19, Jesus is handed over to Pilate. He is flogged, having the flesh ripped off his back. He is mocked, having a a purple robe put upon his bloody back. He has thorns nailed into his head, and then he is brought before the crowd. And Pilate says to them, I have found no guilt in this man. What should I do? And they encourage him, crucify him, crucify him. And he succumbs to the pressure, and he hands him over to be crucified. And so Christ carries the cross up the hill, the hill of the skull called Golgotha, where he is nailed to the cross, hoisted up and humiliated by those he created, spat upon, derided, ridiculed, and then suffers agonizing, suffocating death as he endures the wrath of God on our behalf. Once he is dead, Joseph of Arimathea comes to take the body and to ensure that he is dead, dead. The Roman soldiers stick a spear up through his side into his heart and outflows blood and water. And so Jesus is taken down and buried in Joseph's tomb. And then it is Saturday, the Sabbath day. Jesus lay in the tomb while his disciples hide in fear and in despair, and in utter hopelessness. But then Sunday happens, and that's where we pick up the account today. John 20, we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's code name for John who wrote this gospel. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw that the linen cloths lined there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth with which 
which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciples, who had reached the tomb first, John, also went in and saw and believed. Pause there for just a second. Uh, John is going to make it clear that he did not believe Christ rose from the dead, but at this point he believed Mary's testimony that the body had been taken. He clarifies it, verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. And I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Lord, as we read this account of that Easter Sunday, It is a familiar story, but a story we should never get used to. A story that is unbelievable. And so God, pray that you would impress upon us the glory of the resurrection and the impact that it has on our life today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A week ago, I was sitting with a friend, and I asked him the question, what do you believe about Jesus? It's a pretty vague question, so he asked for clarification. I said, well, do you believe Jesus really existed? He said, yeah, I think Jesus existed. What, do you, what else do you think about Jesus? And he went on, and he said, well, I think Jesus was a really amazing man. He did some amazing things. He he was a great leader, a great teacher, a great revolutionary. He was an amazing man. And so I pressed deeper and I said, well, do you think that Jesus died on the cross? And he thought for a minute and he said, yeah, I think Jesus probably died on a cross. And so I pressed just a level deeper and I said, do you think he rose from the dead? And he said, no. I can't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That is just unbelievable. 
What I so much appreciated about my friend's response was, one, it was honest, and we don't get anywhere unless we're honest with God and with one another. But the second is that he realized something that many of us Christians forget, that the resurrection is unbelievable, that it's miraculous, that it's not something we should grow used to or common with. Here's the problem. While the resurrection of Jesus is unbelievable, it is also central to Christianity. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that if Christ has not raised from the dead, then our faith is useless. There is a lot at stake with this resurrection, but this resurrection is unbelievable. John 20 is the pinnacle and culmination of the gospel of John. There is another chapter that comes, but that is more to tie up loose ends with Peter. But really, John 20 is the summit and the conclusion of the gospel of John. And in John 20, he walks us through not only the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the disciples' response to the resurrection. And so I want to walk through their story, their response today, because I think as we read their story, we will find our story within it. And we will see how we can come to believe that which is unbelievable. First, we will see how they acknowledge their unbelief and how we must acknowledge our unbelief. We're going to Dig more into verse 24 through 25, but verse 19 and 20 through 23 provide a backdrop for us. So John 20, verse 19, says, On the evening of that day, that is the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Quick Side comment, as Jesus breathes upon them to give them the Holy Spirit, it is not yet the day of Pentecost, and so I don't believe this is the Holy Spirit indwelling them, but the Spirit coming upon them as was common in the Old Testament for a specific task. And then we turn to the topic of Thomas, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Many of you are familiar with the nickname Doubting Thomas. Thomas has been called the patron saint of doubt. He is the the poster child for disbelieving the resurrection. But if you dig deeper, you will find out very quickly that Thomas was not the only one who did not believe in the resurrection. If you look at the other gospel accounts, which fill in more of the story, you see that, that many other did not believe. Even Mary Magdalene, who went on that Sunday morning And she brought spices to embalm Jesus' dead body. 
And when she arrives, angel says to her in Luke 24, 5, we read, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Jesus told them five different times at least that he would die, and on the third day, he would rise again. And yet here comes Mary with the spices to embalm Jesus because he is dead. Mary did not believe, but she was not alone in her unbelief. After the declaration from the angels, Mary and some other women go back to disciples to tell them that Christ has risen from the dead. And in Luke 24, we read that It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles that Christ was risen from the dead. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Just as when they had told Thomas in the future that Christ is risen from the dead and they did not believe, they themselves were in that same seat just a week earlier when Mary and the other women come and say, Christ is risen from the dead, and they do not believe their words. It seems as if it is an idle tale. Maybe these women are depressed. Maybe they are hallucinating. Maybe they're just hoping so deeply that Jesus is alive. It seemed as an idle tale to them. And then there is Thomas. He is so adamant, isn't he? He's so adamant in his unbelief to the point of being completely irreverent of the dead. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. In the Greek, this is an emphatic negative. He's saying, I will never, ever, ever believe unless I can see with my eyes and feel with my hands the marks in his body. You know, we have this tendency to believe people of previous generations were extremely gullible people. Do any of these people strike you as gullible? Jesus tells Mary he's going to rise from the dead. She doesn't believe. Mary tells the disciples, Jesus rose from the dead. They did not believe. All the disciples tell Tell Thomas for a week, Jesus has risen from the dead. He does not believe. These are not gullible people. Thomas gets a bad rap for his unbelief, being libeled, doubting Thomas. But this passage reminds us that doubt and unbelief come to all of us. It is common. It comes to Mary. It comes to the disciples. It comes to you and me. All of us, without exception, struggle with unbelief to one degree or another. We struggle to believe that Jesus is risen, that he is ruling and reigning over the world and over our lives today. This doubt expresses itself in different ways. I have three different ways that I have listed out here that you can follow on the screen, in which I think our doubt expresses ourselves. The first is as an unbelieving unbeliever. This is my friend who I sat and talked with about Jesus. There are certain uh, critical aspects of Christianity, like the resurrection of Jesus, that he did not believe. 
And so he did not profess to be a Christian. He was an unbelieving unbeliever. Maybe this is where you're at here today. You've come today because it's tradition, because your family has brought you, or for whatever reason. And you say, you know, this Christianity thing is just too far-fetched. I don't believe in miracles. I don't believe in resurrections. I'm just here to enjoy the service. If that describes you, then you would be an unbelieving unbeliever. And you know what? John chapter 20 is written for you. A second expression of doubt is a believing unbeliever. By this, I mean someone who would say, yes, I believe in the tenets of Christianity. I believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he died for my sins, and that he rose on the third day. You believe these things in your head, but it makes absolutely no impact in your life or on your heart. You have never been born again. And this is the most dangerous of all of these unbeliefs because you have a false assurance of your salvation in Christ. The New Testament is full of religious people who were not born again. Full of religious people who, though believing, were unbelievers. If that's where you are today, John 20 is written for you. The final is an unbelieving believer. I think this is where Thomas was. I think this is where the disciples were, where Mary was, and where many of us are today. That they have been identified with Christ, born again in Christ, saved by Christ. Their affections have been changed by Christ. And yet, at times, they doubt. We doubt. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine who loves the Lord. And he said that there was many years of his life where there was a certain season of the year where he would always doubt his faith. Where he would doubt the whole thing, the existence of God, Jesus as the Christ, the resurrection. He doubted it all. And I would tell you that I can empathize with him because there are times where doubt comes into my heart, into my mind, and into my life. And so sometimes the unbelieving believer doubts in the sense that they doubt the whole thing. But I think what is more common is that we doubt the resurrection situationally. Let me give you an example. In Mark 9, there's a guy who comes to Jesus. His son is demon-possessed. And so he brings his son to Jesus because he believes Jesus can cast out this demon, that Jesus can heal his son. And then Jesus says to him, all things are possible, even the impossible. All things are possible for one who believes. And then immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Do you know how Jesus responded to this man who came acknowledging his unbelief in the midst of believing? He did not rebuke him, but he was gracious to him. And he cast the demon out of his son for just that mustard seed of faith. Christian, how does believing unbelief manifest itself in your life? Any of you here struggle with anxiety? Anyone failing to believe that Jesus is ruling and reigning and intimately involved in every aspect of your life and so you need not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition to present your request to God because Christ is alive? Do you see what I'm getting at? 
Maybe you're believing unbelief manifests itself through fear. You're afraid of what is to come. You're afraid of death. You're afraid of sickness. You're afraid of the future of your children. Maybe you're believing unbelief manifests itself through disobedience. You know what God's word says. You decide to do the opposite because it just seems too difficult. And you don't believe that the resurrection power of Christ lives inside of you to give you the strength and power to overcome that sin. Or maybe you just don't believe that Jesus is enough. That if you give up this sin in your life, that Jesus can satisfy your deepest needs. Maybe your believing unbelief manifests itself through hopelessness and despair. Not believing that Christ can resurrect your marriage or your relationship with your family or maybe even your own life. Maybe your believing unbelief manifests itself through anger, not believing that God's plan for you is perfect and good and right. You see, our believing unbelief manifests itself all over the place. When we stop believing that the resurrection of Christ is true in all of our life. Where in your life are you struggling to believe the current reality of the resurrection? We must acknowledge our unbelief. And then we must challenge our unbelief. John 20, 25 again says, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the hands, the marks of the nails, visible proof, and place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, physical, touchable proof, I will never believe. Thomas was firm and unyielding in his unbelief. But then his unbelief was challenged. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the door was locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas wanted undeniable proof. Thomas wanted visible proof. He says, unless I see. And then the next verse, Jesus appears. He wanted touchable proof. He wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a lookalike or it wasn't just a phantom or a ghost or a vision. He says, unless I put my hand in his side, unless I touch his wounds, I will never believe. And so Jesus comes and he says, put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. You know, we don't actually know if Thomas touched Jesus. The text doesn't tell us. I tend to believe that he did. But there is irrefutable evidence in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just early in this chapter, in verse 17, do you remember what Jesus says to Mary? Do not cling to me. (laughs) Stop clinging to me. Go. She was hugging her Savior. In the next chapter, Jesus cooks breakfast for his disciples. And he eats it, and he enjoys it. Ghosts can't cook. Ghosts can't eat and consume. Jesus was physically raised from the dead. Thomas did not believe at first that Jesus was raised from the dead. But all that changed when his belief was challenged by a seeable, hearable, 
untouchable Jesus. And so let me ask, do you allow God to challenge your unbelief? Several summers ago, I've shared this story before, but several summers ago, I was working in my garage, and uh, it was my day off, a Wednesday, it was the summer, neighborhood was quiet, and this woman comes up my driveway with a backpack on, and I knew what she was up to because I saw across the street, there was another woman with a backpack on, and they were going door to door trying to sell some stuff, okay? So as she's walking up my driveway, I'm thinking to myself, how would Jesus get rid of this woman, right? How would Jesus get rid of a door-to-door saleswoman? How would Jesus do this? Well, I didn't think very fast on my feet, and so she came up, and she says, hey, I have something to show you. It's a cleaner. And my response was, no thanks. We're not interested. She said, well, I just want to show you one thing really quick. I'm like, okay, whatever. And I'm trying, you know, still fiddling with my stuff, saying I'm too busy for this, right? And so she takes a Sharpie and she marks it on a washcloth. And then she takes out her magic juice and she sprays it on the washcloth and she starts rubbing it together. And lo and behold, the Sharpie is gone. But I'm still skeptical. Maybe it's disappearing ink or maybe it only works on washcloths or whatever it might be. But I turned to her and I said, you know what? I tell you what, on the back of my garage, there's a utility door. And my daughter had taken magic marker and written all over that utility door. And we had tried many different times to get rid of that magic marker. And so I said to her, if you can get rid of that magic marker, I will buy your product, all right? See, what I was doing is I was allowing her to challenge my unbelief. So go ahead, challenge it. And so, of course, she goes to the back door, she whips out her magic juice, she sprays it on a rag, and she rubs and she rubs and she rubs, and she gets the magic marker out of the door. And I turned to her and I said, before I promised I would buy the product, I probably should have asked how much it's going to cost. (laughs) And she responded, do you think $1,000 is too much? She said she was joking, but then I brought the product. Because I allowed my doubt to be challenged. Do you allow your doubt? Do you allow your unbelief to be challenged? Maybe you say, well, you know what? If I was Thomas, if I was there, if I was the disciples, if I could see Jesus and touch Jesus, then I would believe. But friends, we don't have to be there because Thomas was there in our stead. The evidence of the resurrection that we have. It's so overwhelming that when we consider it, it challenges our unbelief. The apostles and Mary were not only ones to see the resurrected Jesus. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrected Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Paul says this to say, hey, if you're doubting, go and ask and they can tell you. I mean, think of it right now. In this room, there's probably, I don't know, 250 people. If, if this baptismal levitated and crashed against the wall, and we went and we said, you, you wouldn't believe what happened. The baptism, it raised, it crashed against the wall. There are 250 people here who saw it, that we could testify to it. And we could say, hey, if you don't believe me, go ask those other 249 people, right? 500 people, one time, one occasion, saw Jesus. Paul says, go and ask if you are skeptical. The challenging evidence was so overwhelming that Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, who was not a Christian and never became a Christian, from what we know, says this. He says, when Pilate, upon the accusation of the first men amongst us, condemned Jesus to be crucified, those who had formerly loved him did not cease to follow him. 
For he appeared to them on the third day, living again, as the divine prophets foretold, along with a myriad of other marvelous things concerning him. Josephus realized that the visible, audible evidence was so overwhelming that he recorded it as history. We can have confidence that Jesus is alive, not because we have seen and heard and touched Jesus, but because there are other skeptics who have, who have testified about it. Friends, do you sit comfortably in your unbelief? Or do you challenge it? Do you allow it to be challenged? If we want certainty, if we want a firm foundation, if we want the truth, we must doubt our doubts. There is too much at stake in the claim of the resurrection to simply be lazy in our thinking. No matter what form of unbelief you suffer with, and we all do, we must allow our unbelief to be challenged by the evidence and the glory of the resurrection. And so we must acknowledge our unbelief. Again, whatever form it might take, as a believer or as an unbeliever, we must challenge our unbelief, searching out for what is true. And finally, we must trade our unbelief. I don't know if you saw Jesus' challenge to Thomas in verse 27, but it stuck out to me differently than when I'd read it before. Jesus, at the end of verse 27, after showing himself, says to Thomas, Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus does not simply command Thomas to believe. He tells him to stop disbelieving, to trade it in, to trade in your disbelief for believing. Now, not disbelieving and and believing are probably two sides of the same coin, but I think Jesus is emphasizing something here about not believing. John Gill, in his commentary on this, says this about Thomas's unbelieving. He says, Christ dissuades him from unbelief which is very evil in its own nature and in its effects. It is the root of all evil. It unfits for duty and leads men off from Christ. Friends, we must not only acknowledge our unbelief before God, we must repent of it. It is sin against God. We must repent of it and we must turn from unbelief to belief. This is what Thomas did. And you see his response in verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Friends, this is the boldest proclamation of faith in all of the Gospels. Others confess Jesus as Christ, as the Son of God. But here, Thomas says that Jesus is God himself. Can you imagine a Jew doing this? What utter blasphemy this must have been. But it was the conclusion of the evidence that he had seen and touched and heard. And yet Thomas does not just say, Jesus, you are Lord, and Jesus, you are God. The demons say that. Thomas says, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. It's not a corporate confession, profession, but a personal, individual profession of a doubter who has been saved and challenged by grace. Thomas traded his disbelieving for believing and professed, my Lord and my God. And then something absolutely majestic happens. Jesus is in the room. If you can picture this with with the disciples, and Jesus enters this room, and, 
and he looks at Thomas and he has this conversation with Thomas, locking eyes with Thomas. But then it is as if Jesus turns his eyes and sets them upon you. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? The answer is yes. <laughs> and then he looks at you. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. No doubt that these words of Jesus were spoken for your benefit and for mine. He said, blessed are those to be blessed by God are those who have the faith of God, who are happy in God. And this blessedness is for all who believe, who make the trade, who trade their unbelief for belief, and who make the same confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God. John continues with the summary and the conclusion and the climax of his gospel, encouraging us to trade our unbelief for belief. And he makes it crystal clear that while he is calling us to believing without seeing, he is not calling us to believing without thinking. Verse 30, he says, now Jesus did many other signs. Miracles were called signs because they were signs of Jesus' divinity. Anybody that can stop a storm, anybody that can raise the dead is probably God. They were signs. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Why? So that you may believe without seeing but with great evidence, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What is the purpose of the Gospel of John? What is the purpose of the account of Thomas? It's to give you the overwhelming evidence of other skeptics that Jesus is who he says he was, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and God himself. Friends, do you believe, even though you do not see, Maybe you're here to say, say, you know what, I'm just more of a scientific person. I have to see to believe. You know, seeing is believing, right? But I want to challenge you. You believe a lot of things that you don't see. I don't know if you've heard of Mad Mike Hughes. He was in the news this week. Um, Mad Mike is a 61-year-old limo driver in California, I believe, who had joined the modern movement called the Flat Earth Movement. In an effort to prove that the earth was flat, Mad Mike built a rocket in his garage. That's impressive. Last weekend, uh, eight days ago, Mike launched himself almost 2,000 feet into the air, trying to reach orbit to prove to himself and others that the earth is flat. And so here you see a picture. There's Mad Mike, and there's his little rocket. And somehow he fit in there and launched up 2,000 feet. Afterwards, Mike said, do I believe the earth is shaped like a Frisbee? I believe it is. He said, do I know for sure? No, that's why I want to go up in space. He has a future plan of building what's called a raccoon, which is a rocket attached to a balloon that will lift him up into space, detach, and then he'll fire around and be able to see for himself if the earth is shaped like a Frisbee. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here believe the earth is round? How many of you believe? It's okay if you don't. I mean, but how many believe that the earth is round? Okay. Most of you. How do you know? Have you been in space? I mean, have you been up there? Have you seen the earth and, and seen it rotate and seen that indeed it is round? That it's like a ball? 
I mean, how do you know it's not a Frisbee? You say, well, I've seen videos or, or pictures. Those things can be doctored. How do you know? Why do you believe that the earth is round? It's because the evidence is so overwhelming. You see, when we are called to believe in Jesus, we are called to believe not because we can see it, but because of the evidence. God is constantly giving us evidence that Jesus is the Christ. Last week we talked about the 300 prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. That is evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he has died and risen from the dead so that we can cry out with Thomas, my Lord and my God, and have life in his name. You have heard it said, seeing is believing. But Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Let me end with this. You know, I'm convinced that Thomas did not doubt uh, because he wanted the resurrection, because he didn't want the resurrection to be true. I don't think Thomas doubted because the apostles were known to lie a bunch. I think Thomas doubted because he knew that if the resurrection was true, if it was truly true that Jesus was raised from the dead, that it would change everything. It would change the world and it would change his life. And that's exactly what it did. You probably know what happened. The disciples go out to the outstretches of the Roman Empire where it's Greek speaking and they share the good news of the gospel. But not Thomas. Thomas did not go to the Roman Empire. Church tradition tells us that Thomas instead went to the Far East. Thomas went to India to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to tell others about this man, Jesus, who was God become a man, who died on the cross for our sins and then rose on the third day to give us newness of life, who ascended into heaven and is ruling and reigning. It was recorded that when Thomas first arrived to India, that 40 Jews and 3,000 Hindus traded their unbelief for belief, and they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Thomas continued to minister and proclaim boldly the gospel in India for 20 years until his proclamation cost him his own life in 72 AD. There's an article written by Thomas, uh, by, sorry, Timothy Tennant, who's president of Asbury Theological Seminary, and he concludes his article on Thomas in this way. He says, in conclusion... The Thomas tradition reminds us that although the Apostle Thomas may have come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ a week after the other apostles, he went on to become one of the greatest cross-cultural missionaries of the first century. We should not keep calling him Doubting Thomas. Instead, we should call him Believing Thomas because he not only gives us the most explicit declaration of the deity of Christ in the Gospels, my Lord and my God, but he ends up bringing the Gospel further than any other apostle and even gave his life as an early Christian martyr. Today, on Santhom High Road in Mylapore, India, stands a church, San Tome Basilica, St. Thomas Basilica, and the church, supposedly, is the tomb of Thomas. And above it are written these five words. My Lord and my God. Thomas is not defined by his doubting. He's defined by his believing. 
This church stands as a testimony to the boldness of Thomas. But more importantly, it stands in testimony of this central reality. This one thing, that the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes death into life. The resurrection changes grieving into rejoicing. The resurrection changes fear into hope. And the resurrection changes doubting into believing. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that by your grace you would show us where we are not believing the power of the resurrection in our life. Whether it be with a sin struggle, a relationship struggle, or just holistically, we don't believe that you exist. We pray that you'd reveal it, God, so that it can be challenged by the truth of the gospel, the truth of your word, the glory of the resurrection, that we might cry out in every area of our life, my Lord and my God, we praise you for the resurrection. It is the good news. It is the best news. It is our news if we trust in you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.